I was listening to the news on the way home in my car on the radio and listening to the pundits talking about various things and um, I listened to them briefly engage in a uh, you know, typical soundbite conversation about God and the Bible. And I thought to myself, uh, this is the problem with our culture. We just, um, we live, as Neil Postman says, in a, in a real soundbite culture. I don't know if you ever read that book, um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, a uh, secular book. Uh, I think he's a Catholic, but he doesn't bring much religion into it. Um, the point is, we, we have a, uh, we've gone from a, a print age to a visual age, and it does, hasn't done well for us. Postman wrote that years back, uh, a new book that came out a couple years ago, or maybe it was last year, is entitled The Dumbest Generation, kind of a play on words from The Greatest Generation, uh, if you remember that book. Subtitle is How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future, or Don't Trust Anyone Under 30. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I got to tell you that um, we, we have, we've come to the day where to solve problems uh, in our minds, whatever the issue, the validity of the Bible, the sovereignty of God, the, uh, you know, the problem of evil in the world, we want a two-sentence answer to the problem. And it's just not the way any generation from any period of time, from all of history, has ever approached any problem. We are living in a very unique time. I've had people say, why are we spending an entire semester doing this stuff on Bible backgrounds? I know a big church, and they just did one, one message on it on the weekend. And my response to that, besides being slightly offended, is, uh, is because we need it. We need it. We don't uh, engage our minds like we used to. Uh, it... it, it when uh, Orwell wrote his book about 1984, he pictured a world in which books would be banned. I don't know if you remember that old book. Huxley, though, said uh, in, in his philosophical perspective, you know, in the future we won't need to ban books because no one will care to read them. <laughs> and I think that is where we're at, right? Nobody's banning books. We're still selling them. It's just you can't find very many people that are giving themselves to reading all the things that we're trying to do this semester in establishing, deepening, broadening our understanding of the background of the Bible uh, can't be something that can be packaged into a soundbite on, uh, on a news show that's going to be broadcast on the radio. Uh, we're going to have to spend time protracting the discussion, going deep and wide in this thing. And that's why we're doing it for an entire semester. We could do it uh, for, for two years uh, but we're trying to do something in a reasonable amount of time, but give it more than just the glossed over discussions or the quick little sermonettes that, that I often hear on this topic. So I hope you're into it. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but uh, I hope that we make in our own hearts that sense of, you know, you have those feelings that you're investing properly, and then you have those feelings that you're missing the boat. And I hope you come on Thursday nights, and I hope that you leave on Thursday nights with a real sense that this is the right kind of investment for us to have. So uh, let's open with a word of prayer, and then let's take our weekly verbal test on the steps that we have had to go through to understand the, uh, the Bible from God's mind to our lives. So let's pray together. God, we do thank you for the challenge that we have to be countercultural, not just because we're Christians, but because we 
want to, as Christians, be thinking Christians and reading Christians and Christians that process the information that we need to process to have a real, substantial, deepened, and, uh, and firm knowledge of not only what we believe, but why we believe it. We stand on the Word of God, and if we do, if it is our constitution, if it is our, our guideline for life, and our guidebook, if it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, I pray that we wouldn't just throw up our hands and say, well, we just believe it because God said it. But I pray we'd be able to know that we believe it because God said it and there is evidence for us to reasonably and rationally understand that God did say it. He did indeed and in fact say it. So God, let us just again dig our teeth in tonight into this material and help us to understand some of these things that are so needed and they need to be discussed. And I pray, God, that we would, uh, we would feast on it tonight, enlighten us, educate us, uh, be ultimately our teacher and guide here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We have a test to take as we do every week. God's thoughts to the prophet's mind. We call that? There you go. A little bit louder than I was speaking at the beginning of the night. Thank you. Revelation. We're then going to go from the mind of the prophet to the page of the original document. We call that step? Inspiration. Very good. Now that we have it on a, a manuscript, you've got other manuscripts laying around as well. We've got to decide which ones are a part of God's inspired library. We call that canonicity. canonicity. Very good. Now we've got a set of documents, 66 of them to be exact in terms of books of the Bible. They've got to make it through time to get to us. We call that the never-ending discussion of transmission that we will, Lord willing, end tonight. Now we have these manuscripts extant or existing manuscripts on a table. They've got to get into our modern Hebrew and Greek Old and New Testaments, we call that step, which we will begin the discussion on tonight. Now we have our Hebrew and Greek Bibles. We've got to get into a language that we're more apt to understand. We call that translation. Very good. And if you wanted to take that one step further, we've got to now apply it, right? You've got to preach it or you've got to read it and then you've got to apply it. But I felt that six steps was enough. All right, we are on page 56. Before you stuff yourself full of turkey... And stop thinking for a weekend. Let's get into this. I think we dealt with the difficulties last time. Talked about the, uh, co the codices the, that exist, most of them in the 9th and 10th century. Some in the 11th century, that Masoretic period of the text. And then we said, listen, there's reasons for us to feel good about the way those texts were preserved through time. And the first thing would be our understanding of the Jewish reverence for the text itself. The Jewish reverence for the text itself. They did not copy this like the New Testament church did, which has this decentralized view of people of God. There was a hierarchy and there was this sense of responsibility that the scribes had. For instance, if you were going to write a biblical manuscript, it had to be on an animal skin from a clean animal as opposed to an unclean animal from Leviticus, you had uh, in each column no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The ink must be black, and it was produced from a special recipe. Uh, you had to verbalize each word aloud if you were a scribe while you wrote it. It was a very noisy room, a scriptorium. You had to wipe the pen and wash your entire body before writing the word Yahweh on a manuscript. Right? Think about that. You better have a shower nearby. 
You must review the document within 30 days. There must be a, a committee review of it. And if there were as many as three pages that required any kind of correction as it was gone through, the entire manuscript had to be redone. Right? Wouldn't that be something if our high school students encountered teachers like that? It might be good for them. Letters, words, and paragraphs had to be counted. Everything was counted. The document was invalid if two letters touched each other. Talk about penmanship, right? Wow. The middle paragraph, word, and letter must correspond to those of the original document on every page. The document must be stored only in sacred places. That was just one short list of scribal requirements. So the Jewish reverence for the text, and I guess it kind of bleeds over into this heading as well, meticulous rules of scribes. They revered the text as the sacred text of God. It was his word, and they then had all these rules, and I just gave you a short sampling of the scribal rules. One great reason that we have confidence in the Masoretic text of the 8th, 9th, and 10th century and 11th century is that we have what we would call an unbiased witness of the Septuagint. Remember LXX, Roman numerals for 70, 70 scribes that worked on the Septuagint. These were non-Jews. They had no religious axe to grind. They wanted to get the most important Jewish book into the Alexandrian library for Alexander the Great. They were building this great utopia. So all they wanted to do was translate it. And since they did that in the 3rd century BC, we know we have at least an objective, though it may not be as meticulously copied or translated, at least we have a snapshot that is objective, unbiased, that goes back to the 2nd and 3rd century BC. The great news is, of all the manuscripts that we've uncovered, granted it's a lot less than the New Testament, there are very few variants. We just don't have the kind of variation, and it's obvious why. Well, you've got just anybody copying the New Testament that's literate and wants a copy of it. Uh, you've got no body washing when you write the word Jesus on a, on a page. Uh, you've got an urgency of the return of Christ, unlike the Jews that were there to be there for you know, all time and memorial. And you've got these people pumping out copies of the New Testament at a whole different rate and with a whole different feel than they did in the Old Testament. And so we had very few variants between manuscripts. And then, of course, one of the most important discoveries of all, and I kind of stole my thunder early in the series, is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, just to give you a kind of a sense of this, and this would even be a time if you wanted to interrupt with questions, you could, but let me give you just an overview of this so that you know what we're talking about. If you don't know where Qumran is, and we talk about it a lot, look right here. Do you see that? This is the Mediterranean Sea, right? This is the Dead Sea, called the Dead Sea because it has no outlet and it's super high salt content. The Jordan River runs down here. Sea of Galilee is up here on the wall. Okay, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, those are fairly close. Jericho, Qumran, on the shores of the Dead Sea. Masada, if you've been there to Israel with us, we hike up Masada. At least I did the first time I went and the last time I went. Took the tram the other times. Here's Qumran right here. Okay, that's where these were discovered. It looks like this if you're facing east. This is the Dead Sea, right? The very salty and buoyant Dead Sea. Looking across the Jordan over there. And here are the ruins of what we've uncovered of this community that we assume is a group of Essenes, Jewish Essenes that lived a separatist life 
Some people have conjectured that John the Baptist came out of this group. And the point is, they were very religious and very conservative, and they were very interested in all the holy books of the Jews. Here's yours truly with my much maligned back fanny pack on. I get a lot of grief for that. <laughs> Here's right here. This is cave uh, number four. Cave number four is the most prominent cave as you go to the site. If you've been, how many have been to Qumran before? Look at you. What an educated group. I don't even need to talk about this. But cave number four, you all knew that was cave four then, right? Yeah. Cave number four had 15,000 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts, I should say. 15,000 uh, fragments were found in cave number four. Uh, there were over 200 separate literary works that were discovered just in that cave alone. There were uh, 122 biblical scrolls that they got out of that cave. It's one of the most photographed caves of Qumran. And when we go there, this time I guess Pete will be leading the charge on Israel. He'll stand there and talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, the importance of it. And you'll feel the drama of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, it actually all started right here. This is cave number one. This was the first cave in 1947 where this first manuscript was discovered. It looks like just some crag in the rock and some Bedouin kid, as you have heard, and as I told you earlier in the series, was looking for his lost goat and was trying to get his goat out. And, and here was the cave he thought he'd wandered into. So he throws a rock into the cave and he hears a pot break. Here are the pots of Qumran. Uh, this is what they look like, the jars of Qumran. They're just like your normal, you know, what we would see as the earthenware pottery. They have these lids, and inside these pots, they would roll up and jam the manuscripts in there. That was their library. And remember, we're at the Dead Sea. I mean, this lowest place on the planet, and it's got, you know, such arid, dry uh, environment that you put a cap on that jar and you put in a, a high-quality vellum document, or in some cases, copper, some cases, papyri, that's going to stay in there and it's going to do well for, in, in this case, 2,000 years. It's going to preserve pretty well. So this is what we find, and here's cave number one, and in that cave, that Bedouin found this document. This is just a shepherd boy. He didn't know what to do. But the first thing he brings out of there and sells to a manuscript dealer, some guy in the marketplace who ends up taking it to St. Mark's Monastery in the old city of Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem with us, you've got to visit that and get a picture in front of it. It's just this out-of-the-way little place where, you know, funny-dressed guys hang out. And in there, they, they, the guys end up acquiring it and putting it in their library. I should have had a picture of St. Mark's. Well, the one that they had there was this scroll here, which is the most famous one. This is uh, the great Isaiah scroll, came out of cave number one. And they knew they had something. They didn't know what they had, but they knew it was old. So they know the Americans are in town. And it's 1947, so it's just chaotic in Jerusalem. And, and you know, British are there, and there's, there's barbed wire in the streets. So, but they finally get it over there and to what's now called the Albright Institute, the you know, Center for Oriental Research, and nobody's there. The guys are all out, but there's one guy there who's doing a dissertation on the flora and fauna of the ancient Near East. He's doing a book, a picture book on the flowers of Israel. <laughs> well, he's got really great cameras and tripods there, but he knows enough to know, well, wait a minute, did I say they're trying to find out what they've got? Well, he immediately recognizes the, uh, the script here, 
And this is when we used to do good training when you were getting your doctorate. They would they'd be able to say, well, that's, that is an old Hebrew script, uh, which looked a lot more like the Nash papyrus than it does the Codex, uh, the Leningrad Codex or the Aleppo Codex. And he said, this looks older than anything we have studied in school. So they try to figure out this is indeed one of the, I mean, this is really the most incredible find in modern times of an ancient manuscript. Anyway, it's a, it's a drama beyond anything that I could summarize for you in five minutes. But the ability to get this thing finally out into the right hands to identify the date, to identify what it is, and then to send them back to go get more, and all the political turmoil that went on uh, was absolutely amazing. Of course, the story is drama, but what it did for textual criticism and transmission of the text, in terms of our understanding of the transmission of the text, maybe helped by my little timeline here. If the original autographs of the Old Testament were written between 1400 and 400 BC. You got a thousand year period in which these documents were written. We were dealing with and had been dealing with for years, for centuries, the Masoretic texts that came around 900 AD. Most of the manuscripts that were used for translations in modern translations, let's just say, uh, I guess I, that's an anachronism, but if we had like a, you know, whatever it would be, some uh, revised standard or new revised standard. New, let's use the revised standard prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, the 1901, uh, let's just say the American standard. Let's go with that. Not the new American standard, but the 1901 American Standard Bible. They would use the Masoretic text and all of those manuscripts, Aleppo Codex, Leningrad Codex, to translate the Old Testament into English. Problem is, that's a huge gap. 900 AD all the way back to 400 BC or 1400 BC, and that was like, wow, it's a little concerning. Well, what other early witness did we have? Well, we had the Septuagint. We had the Septuagint dating, and I put 100 because I'm talking about extant manuscripts, right? Existing manuscripts. The earliest legitimate and substantial Septuagint is coming from about 100 BC. And we have several, even when we find things like uh, Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus, those all have the Septuagint in them. But we have earlier Septuagint witnesses going back to 100. It was obviously done in the 3rd century BC, but we have existing manuscripts in museums and in universities that go back to 100 BC. So that helped, but it's not done by Jews, and it's not done in Hebrew, and it's from Hebrew, and what they translated it from we don't have, but because there's substantial harmony between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, we felt pretty good about it. But wouldn't it be good if we had a set of Hebrew manuscripts that closed the gap to at least getting somewhere near 400 BC? That would be helpful. That's what the Dead Sea Scrolls did. That was the amazing thing in unrolling the Isaiah Scroll, which there's great pictures of John Trevor. That's the name of the guy who took the pictures, who was there doing the dissertation on flora and fauna of Palestine. He takes the pictures with his tripod as he unfurls the Isaiah Scroll. And if you haven't heard me say this, you need to know that the Isaiah scroll compared to the Masoretic text of the 9th and 10th century AD, they're identical. They're identical. There are very, very few variants. You have less variance between the Dead Sea Scroll, Isaiah scroll from Cave 1 and the Masoretic text, say the Leningrad Codex of the Masoretic text of the 10th century. You have less variance between those manuscripts than you would have between, say, the Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus of New Testament manuscripts. It was an amazingly similar find. 
I mean, obviously there were small problems, as we'll look at some tonight, but that was phenomenal. It closed the gap. Now, that did so much for us because, as I've said before, when people look at the book of Daniel, for instance, they say, well, that was done years after the fact, after the Romans already established their, their dominance in the land, and it was done by four or five editors, and the, 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 the editing that took place, it, we, the final form of Daniel, we didn't have that until maybe the ninth century before the Masoretic text was put together. Well, we found the book of Daniel several copies of the book of Daniel predating the time of Christ in complete scrolls by obviously one author, right? That was, that was obvious. If they did the editing, they did it before the third century BC and it was all in place before Rome ever became a superpower. Those were the kinds of things that dispelled and made a lot of critical theological works absolutely obsolete. And we had to throw all those books out and say, well, I guess we were wrong because of the thousands of scrolls and fragments that were found at Qumran. So an amazing discovery. Now I could talk more about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but let me give you some books that may help. Oh, by the way, yeah, you could do this, not that we want to, because the Masoretic text, we have more Masoretic texts that are complete and in good shape than we do Dead Sea Scrolls. But the great thing is, if you wanted to, you could take the middleman out and say the ESV that we read in 2009 uh, it matches the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, by and large, for the most part, of 200 B.C., right? So, and, and even that, if you're going to say there's a copying of manuscripts with a large gap, you're going to say it's the Old Testament. But we closed a thousand-year gap, 1,100-year gap, just with the discovery of manuscripts that look like this. And they're in great shape. Obviously, that may not look like great shape for today's standards, but excellent specimen of manuscripts. If you go to Israel with us, go to the uh, Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem if you haven't been there. This is your first time, obviously, you haven't been there. But that is the most amazing housing and presentation of the Dead Sea Scrolls in one place in anywhere in the world. Hey, here's a book for you. If you want to say, well, what, did, what is different? Because you're saying for the most part and for the most part. This is a small book because there's not a lot to report on. But if you want to see the differences, they're all in this book. The Dead Sea Scrolls and Modern Translations of the Old Testament. Uh, any pertinent issue that comes up between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic Text is all documented here. This is not a technical book. I mean, it's moderate, I suppose, and in, in challenge. But if, if you're really wanting to dig in to what is different about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic Text in that 1,100-year gap, this book will deal with that. If you want to, and I know this is probably a bigger want for you, if you want to read the drama of how the Dead Sea Scrolls came from obscurity into the Albright Institute, read this book, The Dead Sea Scrolls, A Personal Account by John Trevor, who, by the way, lived right here in, uh, where, in Ir or Lake Forest. He lived in Lake Forest. That was his last residence, yeah. And he's dead now. He died. But um, as people do. John Trevor was an Orange County guy. Uh, at least that's where he retired. And this, by the way, if you, find, if you go to eBay to find this, because I, I don't think they're still producing this uh, new, maybe they are. The old title, and I have this copy in my library too, is also entitled The Untold Story of Qumran. That's a great read. And even if, you, if you're like the kind that likes to read, you know, stories and whatever, th this one is, is a fascinating, fascinating book. Highly recommend that. Now, if you're saying, well, I want everything about the Dead Sea Scrolls that's not 
you know, the stuff you buy at Costco. Because, you know, at Costco, you'll see the occasional, the secrets of Qumran, you know, the, the, the salacious facts of the Dead Sea. And all of that is nonsense, really. I mean, I've read them. I, not all of them, obviously, but I've picked those up, and I've read them, and I've bought some. They're, they're nonsense. If you want a legitimate, readable, academic book on it, get this book. It really covers the gamut. It's called The Meaning of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I hate the fact that they marketed the cover of this to look like the salacious books, but it is a good book. It's solid, and it covers everything from what's in it. You know, there's obviously all the biblical books except for Esther and all this other stuff. What are all this, what's all this other stuff about? What difference does it make, and uh, what condition were they in? There's a lot of interesting stuff in this book, The Meaning of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can order it in our bookstore. There may even be a couple copies of all these books there because I've recommended them in the past. If you want, if you go to Barnes & Noble or you go online and you, you buy a Dead Sea, if you find a book and it says Dead Sea Scrolls, you go, oh, great, Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm going to buy that because we talk about that at church. And you open it up, there's no, there's no biblical texts in there. <laughs> there's all the extra biblical text like the story of the of the sons of light and the and the sons of darkness and the you know the copper scroll treasure hunt and all that all of those things are they're interesting but they're not of critical importance to us in this study if you want the copies of actually exactly what the manuscript said from genesis to malachi and esther's not there but everything else that is been translated and published to this date, you can find in this book. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible. And even this was kind of a tintillating title, the oldest known Bible translated for the first time in English. But this is a big fat book that basically is a translation of all the scrolls. And you're going to say, well, it reads just like my Old Testament. Well, that's the point, And it's good because it does. Uh, and that's what I'm saying. But there are Little nuances, if you're reading through the Old Testament, you might find an interesting, you know, variation here and there in the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible. Any questions about the Dead Sea Scrolls before I leave this topic? Not to get waylaid here because we do want to make haste. Yeah, we don't know. And it may be because a lot of the, well, let me start with it may be. At one time, this was a nice library. Now we found it in pieces. The Isaiah Scroll is the best specimen we have of a complete book from chapter 1 to chapter 66. Most of these are fragmented, and we have to piece them together. And tons of them, you opened up the, the jar, and things fell apart. Looked like something from your fireplace. So Esther may have been there, but because we haven't found any legitimate, hey, that's the book of Esther, uh, the assumptions are it didn't mention the name of God, one reason, the Essene community, if it was Essenes, the people at Qumran, they weren't keen on it because it didn't use the name of God. Uh, it was a disputed book in some circles because of that. It seemed like uh, extra biblical history for some early on. So all there is is speculation. There's no anti-Esther material in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, that I can recall. There's nothing bad about Esther there. We just haven't uncovered anything that we can positively identify. Anything else about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, in the back. Tons, tons of other books. Yeah, there's lots of other books. But they're, they're mostly, like if you found my library a thousand years from now, you'd find lots of Bibles and lots of translations, and then you'd find lots of other books because there's lots of other books in my library. And so it was for this Christian community and these spiritual teachers and leaders, there's lots of books. They're not what Costco 
salacious Dead Sea Scrolls want to make of it. You know, we found a new Jesus. There's no new Jesus in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is pre-Jesus information. There's only two manuscripts that are debated in the Dead Sea Scrolls that people think may be verses from New Testament books. Two. And it's just because we can match up some papyri and a few Greek words with something that matches the Greek text of the New Testament in two cases. But it's, you know, it's debated. But lots of books, yeah. And we have some in Greek, some on papyri, some on copper, some on vellum, but primarily in Hebrew. The most copies of any Old Testament book, there's none of Esther, more copies of Psalms than any other book. Lots of Psalms. They use it as their song book. So there's many copies. That outnumbers all the other copies by, by far, exponentially. All right, let's move, let's move on here. Now, let's turn our minds to the New Testament. What are the advantages? We have difficulties in the Old Testament. We have advantages in the New Testament. Obviously, we have a challenge, and I've already brought that up. We don't have scribes meticulously, religiously copying the New Testament. We've got Christians who are waiting for the return of Christ at any moment, quickly copying manuscripts of the New Testament. It's a different feel, and it's a different group of people. Obviously, they're literate people. They're just not washing their bodies when they write the name of, of Jesus. But what are the advantages? Well, number one is the wealth, the plethora of manuscripts that we have. We have so many New Testament extant manuscripts, existing manuscripts, that have survived in transmission to this day. And because of that, we've got a lot of comparison. The more manuscripts, the better, because the more manuscripts we have to compare. Now, you've seen this chart, probably, and Josh McDowell made this famous because he took his seminary notes and, and published them. But here is a comparison chart of manuscripts available from an ancient source. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've seen the, you know, the, the ancient classics library. I mean, it's a, they're in red and Latin and green and Greek. And uh, all those books, most famous, are, I picked a few. Homer's um, uh, Iliad, the Odyssey, right? Homer's book is attested to by 643 ancient manuscripts. And they, like we do in the New Testament, have to piece all those together because none of them match perfectly. They all have variant readings. They have to now reassemble what Homer actually wrote because they don't have the original one signed by Homer because it was written on papyrus and it has deteriorated. Every book from antiquity has to be reconstructed from the copies that we have. How many copies? 643. Sophocles. Some of you had to read that in, you know, maybe Western Civ and the you know, developments of civilization or whatever. Sophocles is 193 ancient manuscripts that attest to that document. Don't have the original of any of these. Aristotle. A lot of talk of Aristotle. A lot of, you go to Barnes & Noble, go to Borders, and you'll see Aristotle's writings. There it is, published for you. Very few people pick it up and go, who can trust this? It's been rewritten so many times. You know, I can't believe a thing in it because eh, it's, I don't believe it. Just it's the telephone game, that's all it is. Well, nobody says that because they don't have an ax to grind with Aristotle because he's not trying to be the Lord of their lives. But the point is, if you want to compare, it doesn't even come close. There are only 49 extant manuscripts from antiquity that attest to or give witness to the writings of Aristotle. The Gallic Wars, 10. Plato, 7. Pliny the Younger's History, 7. Catalyst, 3. That's it. 
Now, the New Testament, I hope you've already got a sense of these numbers because we've dropped them as we've looked at papyri and uncial manuscripts and minuscule manuscripts, but we've got 5,738, which from the last time I taught through this thing, it's 500 more than we had before because we keep finding them that date back to the early centuries that give an ancient witness to the text. Now, we've already looked at other things like quotes from early patristic fathers, church fathers, lectionaries that quote it, inscriptions, ostraca. We looked at all those. If you add all those together, you've got 19,300. You add all that together, you've got over 25,038. And this doesn't count any of the early versions, Coptic, Syriac, none of that. We're just talking about ancient Greek manuscripts, inscriptions, lectionaries, or patristic quotes. Compare that to anything from antiquity. It doesn't even come close. So before you want to dismiss out of hand the New Testament because, well, it's been rewritten thousands of times and all of that, you've just got to at least know we've got 25,000 witnesses stepping up to testify as to what these New Testament verses should say. Okay? The other advantage is not only the number of manuscripts, but the gap from the autographs to the extant copies. The gap from the autographs to the extant copies. How far do we have to trust that that text hasn't changed? Well, the Old Testament we saw, well, we still got some space. But thankfully, every time we've closed the gap, we found the same Bible, whether in Greek Hebrew, Dead Sea Scrolls, Masoretic Text, we're trusting that those years from 400 to 200 and 1400 to 200, we're trusting that those were because they were religiously copied by scribes and all the things that I read for you, hey, we are assuming there's some continuity. But the gap is a period of trust. What about as you compare the years of gap with these guys? Let's just go through the same list. Homer, okay? If you're going to say, now Homer was written here, and our extant copies in universities and museums are here. How far is the gap? 500 years is as close as we can get from the writing of Homer to the extant manuscript that you could look up in a university, library, or museum. Sophocles, 1,400 years. We just don't have any early witnesses to speak of, and the ones we count come 1,400 years after the writing. Aristotle, just about the same. The Gallic Wars, a thousand years. Plato, 1,200 years. Pliny the Younger, 750. Catalyst, 1,600. New Testament. Now, again, this is what is the earliest manuscript we have. In, I don't know if anybody took my challenge and read Eyewitness to Jesus. If you've got Eyewitness to Jesus, and we really have fragments of Matthew, right, from the first century, then you've got probably a 10-year gap at the most. If we go back to traditional wisdom, which is... Uh, John Ryland's papyrus, P52, then we've got a 25-year gap. If you want a complete New Testament, well, you got, you've got a 100, 200-year gap, but, you know, you're getting the pieces together on a table before we can assemble the whole thing. You've got less than two and a half hundred years, which, again, I'm just looking at extant manuscripts in the other department. If we're going to compare apples to apples, we're looking at a 25-year gap before we can find a fragment of Homer. I studied in the classics department to uh, get my first handle on, on classic Greek. I actually studied uh, Attic Greek before I studied Koine Greek. 
And what we did in reading Homer and Aristotle in those classes, we took it all at face value, even though the gap was exponentially larger and the number of manuscripts was exponentially smaller. And no one was in the class making a stink that what we had before us in Greek was not what Homer, Sophocles, or Aristotle actually wrote. But when we did read the New Testament in that class, we had problems because I was there with a bunch of non-Christians who didn't much care for it. But it was fun to ask the professor questions because he was a non-Christian. And when he enlightened my fellow students, you know, I think the respect for the New Testament greatly increased because we weren't there to study the Bible. We were there to study ancient Attic Greek. And they recognized that it was better attested than anything else we were reading in the class. That's probably more information than you need. Observations regarding New Testament documents. A couple of things. Let's just do this real quick, and we'll come back to a little bit of this in textual criticism. But there's, um, in the preservation of the text, you just need to know that much like in theology, there are periods in church history where things are happening and the focus, you know, moves from this to that. Just like the Trinity. The Bible didn't change, but to crystallize our understanding of the Trinity, it took a lot of heretics denying the Trinity for the church to focus on the Trinity to define the Trinity and hammer it out. Eschatology, that's a relatively recent study of really hammering out what is going on in the end times. The church goes through phases, and when it comes to the New Testament, uh, it's been the same way. From the first century to the fourth century, the church seemingly, from all of our evidence, was only interested in copying it. People wanted copies of it, people wanted to quote it, people wanted to preach it. We wanted to propagate the message. There wasn't a lot of work in comparing manuscripts or trying to do anything but get it out there. Early translations and early copies. Everybody just wanted to reduplicate the text. From the 4th century to the 15th century, there became a need to standardize the text. In other words, when we got uh, uh, the Bishop of Rome, for instance, saying, okay, great, we've got so many copies of the New Testament and none of them match, we need to standardize the text. And that's why Jerome was appointed by the Bishop of Rome to say, give us a text that we can all read off of that's the same, and then we'll copy that. Let's standardize the text. And that went on from the 4th to the 15th century. Well, we had a lot of standardized texts, and then in the 15th to 17th century, people said, well, you know what? We better crystallize this text and make sure that what we're dealing with is not added, not subtracted. It's not, it's, we've got to get this thing in a form that puts it back in the original languages and allows us to know that what we're dealing with is, to the best of our knowledge, the true reading of every text. Okay? It became even more intense after the 17th century where criticism and revision, we began to say, okay, we all have our Greek New Testaments and our Hebrew Old Testaments, uh, and this is primarily a discussion about the New Testament because that was the focus of the church, obviously. Hey, let's make sure that our theories about which manuscript should be held in value over another manuscript really make sense. And there's been changes from the 17th century in understanding those things, just like there was changes between reduplication to standardization and standardization to crystallization. And by standardization, think about it. Everybody in their own language wanted to standardize a text. Crystallization, they all wanted to go back to a trustworthy Greek text as it relates to the New Testament. Properly evaluating variants, making sure we were understanding theory about manuscripts, period, we still live in. All right, let's talk about that now because that really is where it's going to take us. Let's talk about textual criticism. Textual criticism, what is it? 
Let's give it a definition here. Sorry, a little bit of writing, but it's important that we get it. Textual criticism is the science of comparing, just like every branch of science, there are theories involved in us discussing what we value over what we don't value as much. More on that as we move through this. The science of comparing and evaluating ancient manuscripts. We're gonna put them all on the table. We're gonna try to compare them all and evaluate them with theories of evaluating them so as to determine the most accurate reading as we try to restore that accurate reading of the original autographs. What did Paul actually say? What did John actually say? What did Luke actually write? It's the science of comparing and evaluating ancient manuscripts because they're handwritten, there are differences, there are variants. We've got to determine what's the most accurate reading of the original autographs. If you've been to Bible school, you're familiar with the phrase lower criticism or you do some reading on this. We're talking about lower criticism, not higher criticism. Higher criticism is what the liberals do and trying to question that John even wrote it and who knows how this story came to be. Lower criticism is textual criticism. We're believing the Bible as Jesus did. We're just trying to make sure all these variants, we sort them out properly. Now the Old Testament, just back to this real quick. Here are four things that give us relative confidence. This is a bit of a restatement, but let's put it in words that help us in terms of text criticism because we won't spend long here. The unity of the Masoretic text. Because the Masoretic text is... I mean, there are such few variants in the text, it's really not an issue. Even all the debates that go on about translations today, nobody's debating the text and the variant readings really to speak of. It's usually translation issues. It's not what manuscripts are we reading off of. The harmony between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, that's super helpful for us. I mean, there's a real harmony there and a consistency there, which doesn't leave us a lot of concern the harmony between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic Text. Because the Masoretic Text is the best documented, the most, th there's more options for us to look at, there's more manuscripts available, and because it harmonizes with the Septuagint and it harmonizes with the Dead Sea, and because there's not a lot of variants within the Masoretic Text, and because we understand there was such religious care in copying it, which we've talked about a little bit, it leads us to this conclusion. When it comes for textual criticism, and though Old Testament guys in seminary would maybe debate this, the, lead, the, the need is low. The concern, people getting their, you know, selves all in a tiff about it, you don't find a lot of debate. I was hosting the call-in show the other week, last week or whenever it was, and people were asking about the uh, textual issues, you know, between new translations and old translations in the Old Testament. And I said, there, there really aren't many. And all I could do was take him to Harold, Harold Scanlon's book and say, if you want the whole list, there it is, but it's, it's not much to speak of. So when it comes to textual criticism, as we evaluate manuscripts, we're going to spend 99% of our time talking about New Testament issues. Now, the need in the New Testament. While many manuscripts gives us confidence that we have what Paul actually wrote, we can reassemble that. The number of manuscripts <laughs> makes it harder to do textual criticism. So the need is great. You can assume that. I didn't put the blue box next to it. But the need in the New Testament is great because of the number of manuscripts. And just to review here, let's just put the latest numbers. Because if you took this course with me before, the numbers have all changed. We now have catalog, though there are more waiting to be assigned catalog numbers and people aren't quite sold on this one or that one. There are now 126 groups of papyri manuscripts. And you know that it involves several pages or sometimes, uh, you know, several pieces. 
Uh, sometimes, you know, 106 pages counts as one papyri. We've got 126 groups or stacks of papyri that witness to the New Testament. Uncial manuscripts, 318, and that number's up. Minuscule manuscripts, 2,882 is the latest count as of this year. Lectionaries, 2,412. You 4.0s, remember this number from the other page. 5,738, if my calculator was working right. Yes? Most of them are being discovered even today in Egypt and Israel. Yeah. Egypt is just such a great place to find these because there's a lot of -of out-of-the-way arid places of deserted ruins that have been abandoned and are just now being attacked in, in archaeology. And while we go there to find these archaeological sites, we end up finding their libraries and their books. Babylon and Iraq. I'm scanning my mind to think of any recent finds of manuscripts there, and I can't think of a single one, but I could look that up. All right, New Testament. The need is also, and primarily, a problem. That's down at the bottom, by the way. Number two, because of the number of variants. We're still on page 58, the number of variants. And if you want to squeeze some of these in, you want an example of that. If you were to take the hundreds of examples and ancient witnesses to the book of Matthew, for instance, okay, you would find that there are 567 places where the book of Matthew has a variant reading, where the manuscripts don't match. You could have 352 that are all together on this verse, but over here, you know, you got two that disagree with that on something, and we're going to look at several examples here. 567. Mark, about 556. Now, you know, Mark's much shorter than the book of Matthew. Not quite half as small, but what, 70%? So per verse, it's got more. Luke, 637. We could go through the whole New Testament, but I won't, but just to give you a flavor of it all. John, 567. Now, those are all big books, and as is the book, the book of Acts, but that's got less. But of all the manuscripts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, you can see that if you put all the manuscripts together in one place, which we have and we do, Swanson's book does that, you've got 567 places in Matthew, 556, 637, 567, 395. I put a couple more. Romans, much less. I think there's lots of reasons for that. When you go from narrative to epistolatory genre, when you look at a text that's trying to teach you, it's different than going up the mountain and walking through the city. It becomes much more exacting, and copying gets better. So just to give you an example, the epistles get better. I know they're smaller, but the variants get smaller as well. So most of the stuff that we're dealing with is in the Gospels. That's what I'm trying to say, and some, you know, There's obviously some throughout the New Testament. Now, why do we have these problems? Now, page 59. Why why do these variants exist? Well, I guess generally speaking, we could say because they're not on a a Xerox machine. They don't have printers. That's why there's so many variants. But what are the reasons for people making copies that, why are there differences? Well, number one, a lot of them weren't meant. It wasn't intentional. And the first thing is spelling errors. Now, you know that these documents went out all over the place and they captured names of people and places and cultures that were often not the people that were copying these things. 
I mean, think about all the manuscripts that come out of Alexandria, Egypt, that come out of the whole Egyptian Nile Valley, and they were translated and kept there, but they're not, you know, we're using provincial words from Galilee. You've got a cultural gap, okay? My name is a cultural gap for people. And we used to, when we were first married, keep a file of all the terrible ways our name was spelled on letters that came in the mail. Do you have a last name like that? Here's a few of them, okay? That's the most common, I would think, okay? You get this one a lot. This happens all the time. We do. Carlin, am I right? We've got a lot of Fabaras here. Do we not see S at the front of it all the time? Yeah. I get double B occasionally because they want to say Fabaras. I get that too. Nobody quite writes Febreze like the fabric softener, but <laughs> they say it that way. I get Febrez. I get that too. I bet in a year I could show you mail at my house. You can get most of those. And these guys are using computers, right? So I'm just telling you, spelling errors is a big part of what we're dealing with when I talk about variant readings. If you had eight manuscripts on a table, let's just say we had 800 manuscripts on a table, and the text called for the word Fabarez, F-A-B-A-R-E-Z, and you had eight different ways of spelling it, that would all be, in all of those manuscripts, variants. They'd be variant texts. Now, when people try to be against the Bible, and they try to attack the Bible. Look at all those mistakes. Well, you know, the postman knows who I am, right? You know what I'm saying? He doesn't get thrown off. He doesn't throw those in the trash. Go, who knows who that is, right? <laughs> he gets who that is, and he assumes they didn't quite get it right. But even my postman could make the correction, right? Spelling errors. Here's why it happens in Greek a lot because letters look a lot alike. These are uncial script. This is alpha, delta, and lambda. You can see where all those look a lot alike. Can you? Here's, uh, these are all uncial script. It's not modern typeset script from your Greek New Testament, but epsilon, theta, and omicron, all those look alike, or can look alike, depending on how they're written. Okay, here's two put together. This is an iota and an uncial sigma, which looks like a C. You can see where if those are jammed together, these aren't Jews who can't let letters touch. These are Christians who are hurrying about evangelism because Christ is coming back. When those letters touch, it looks a lot like a kappa, okay? Here's a gamma and a tau. Those can look a lot alike. Here's a bunch right here. Iota, iota, put together. Eta, P, tau, and tau, tau. You put those two together, and those are going to start to, who knows what we're dealing with. Right, a tau tau could look like a, a P. I know you call it pi, but the proper way to say pi is P. Ask anybody at the classics department at the university. Here's a mu and two lamnas. You can see where that could be a spelling problem. Happens the most on city names and proper nouns, right? Well, those are proper nouns. It happens most on proper nouns, and it creates a variant. It's a problem. Here's some examples, okay? The oldest Alexandrian text in Luke chapter 8, 26, and maybe you've already discovered this. Some of you are so observant, you've said, I got a problem because one, one of my Bibles says this and one of my Bibles says that, okay? Here's the oldest Alexandrian spelling of this place where the demons were cast out, right? The Gerasenes. The later Alexandrian texts, right, added a G in the middle of this, 
the Gergerasenes, right? And all those texts follow that pattern, the later Alexandrian texts. The Byzantine texts, the latest texts, and the most voluminous texts spell it completely different. The Gadarenes. And if you look now at some of your English translations, there's only one, well, there's two, I guess, the King James and the New King James, you'll see these proper nouns are spelled differently than in a New American Standard or an NIV, and you say, what's with that? Well, it's all about the spelling differences that took place through time. The earliest Alexandrian text, the Gerasenes, later Alexandrian, and then later Byzantine, the spelling changed. And those groups of manuscripts got copied from those places, and they kept that variant. So we have hundreds of manuscripts with this spelling and hundreds of manuscripts with that spelling. And the oldest Alexandrian, we don't have many of because they're the oldest, but they have a whole different spelling too. They don't have the G in the middle of the word. These are the kinds of errors we're dealing with. And you know what? If you were the postman, you'd know where that city was. See what I'm saying? It's no big deal. Spelling errors. Transposition of letters, right? I love spell check, but we didn't grow up with it, did we? And I just thought of a lot of words where I transposed the the letters. This is a classic one for me, right? And I got to use English examples for us, but Greek, we got the same problems. Words that have normal patterns. What did I say? They spelled the same. Well, that's because my spell checker got me. I tried to spell it wrong. but they're spelled the same. I wondered why it looks so right. I thought, well, I'm so messed up. They both look right. You know what I was trying to do here, okay? Transpositional letters, and I can give you a lot of Greek examples, but it's the same problem in Greek as it is in English, only they didn't have spell checks and didn't fix it automatically, right? You have autocorrect on all the time, I hope. Okay, uh, quickly here on this one, number three, missed word divisions. Now, what did I tell you about the earliest manuscripts? There's no word divisions, okay? So read this for me. Are you ready? Read this for me. Oh, uh -huh. wow. But you understand what's happening. It could mean one thing. It could be another thing. Paul is now here. Paul is nowhere. Don't know. Some manuscripts began to take on this form. Some manuscripts took on that form. Here's another one right here. This is the one you always see in the books. What does that say? That's the problem of early manuscripts that don't have word divisions. And I, we could do this in the original languages, which I think we did, and my wife got home and said, why did you do that? And, and no one was tracking with you on that. When, I, when we did the, the passage in Hebrew and I showed you, showed you the, the eem, the duel on oxen, remember that? Did I, didn't I do that? I don't want to blame my wife for me not doing it now again, but you might want to thank my wife. Uh, but yeah, a lot of you glossed over on that. So in English, it's more fun. You, you even smiled. But the same thing in Greek and the same thing in Hebrew. When you don't have word space, occasionally you have issues and you don't know which way it, you, it goes. It can go one of two ways. Okay, another unintentional error is accidental omissions. Because there's not repl easy replacements for all of these things, much like your Bible, I suppose, there's a lot of writing going on in the margins. The problem is the writing in the margins, well, let's just talk first about this. Accidental omissions. Uh, letters, for instance. If you take the O out of thorough, you got through, and it can work in sentences. And if in an early manuscript in a particular part of the, of the world, say in a Western text way out toward Italy, 
it leaves out the O, and one scribe does that early on, and a whole bunch of manuscripts come from that family of manuscripts. All of a sudden, now, if it works in the sentence, that stays, and now we got Alexandrian text or Byzantine text that don't match the Western text. It happens a lot through the accidental omission of letters. This happens, too, the accidental omission of words. Take this sentence, for instance. No, I'm just making these up here. These aren't Bible verses, obviously, but see how this plant withered. I thought of the fig tree when I said that, but see how this plant withered. Now, let's just say plant was at the end of the sentence or the beginning of a, uh, of a line, the end of a line or the beginning of a line, and someone dropped it off early on. Now it read this way, see how this withered. Well, you got the context. You don't need the word plant. So that whole set of manuscripts makes sense without the word, and that manuscript grows up, and, the ma and that word's not there anymore. And that you could have thousands of manuscripts without the word plant there. And it all makes sense, and it continued to be copied because someone left a word out. Lines of text. These become easier to catch. Letters are harder, and words are hard. But lines of text become occasionally a problem, but they're usually quickly caught. Example. Again, these are silly sentences that I just made up. Yesterday, I went on a wild boat ride with Paul, and he told us that it would be with no cargo. So I left all my bags. I didn't even pack a toothbrush. When you see a text that's got two words that are the same at the beginning of a line, right? this is when we start to have problems. Because if someone skips that, and it, ha it skips that line with their eye, and it happens to make sense without it, right? then the next copy looks like this. Yesterday I went on a wild boat ride with no cargo, so I left all my bags and didn't even pack two. Well, I lost that whole sentence there, but it made sense. And that manuscript continues on because you can make sense of that sentence. This is one of the problems of copying manuscripts by hand. Accidental additions. Accidental additions. This is probably a bigger problem than just about anything in textual criticism in my mind. Even things that I'm going to show you under intentional additions, the guys argue that they're unintentional additions or accidental additions. Here's an example. Again, I'm just making up crazy sentences. At the worst time of the night, the boat began to break into pieces and all my stuff, I was thinking of the book of Acts and the shipwreck, right? Got tossed around in the sea and we had hoped that the rain would stop, but it hasn't and so we will start sailing again tomorrow and all of this has really been a burden on all of us, but we will not stop sailing. It is God's will that we continue. Let's just say that's the inspired text. Now remember, people are writing in the margins, okay? Problem is, the marginal note is in, in a written hand as is the copy that you just got from your Christian cousin, Jim. And you write this in the margin. Oh, this is, a really, this is really great. I like the sailing parts. Uh, this is silly, but let's just say you write that. Problem is, it's going to look just like that, right? And when the marginal, what we call glosses, start to match and make sense with the text, you start to add things that may work, right? All my stuff got tossed around in the Great Sea. There's another word for the Mediterranean Sea. Well, that's where they were. That may get stuck in, in, in a handwritten copy when you pass on the manuscript to your cousin Fred, who's now going to make a copy of it. Or down here, when you say, we'll be sailing again tomorrow, all this sailing really has been a burden on, on all of us. All of a sudden, sailing gets now added to the text because it, it got integrated in through a marginal gloss. That happens a lot in the New Testament. Sometimes intentional, sometimes in unintentional, or at least we assume. That makes sense? Number six, misunderstandings. Homophones, is that what we call these? Homophones, you school teachers? R and R, our, air and air, 
bridle and bridle, duel and duel, graze and graze, idle and idle, prophet and prophet. We could do the same thing in Greek, not quite as many homophones. Well, I think I can substantiate that statement. But there are some, and when you're saying, okay, listen, Jim, Fred, we want to pass this on to Tom, Dick, and Harry as well. So here's the thing. Let's get them all together. And Saturday night, we're going to copy the book of 1 Thessalonians. All right? And I got a copy right here. Are you ready? Get your, get your quills out. Here we go. And now we dictate it to the copyists. Because I want my whole extended family to have a copy of the text. Now, the homophone has become a problem. And people start to hear words. And if it makes sense, prophet or prophets or idol or idol or whatever it might be in Greek, then all of a sudden, we've got a variant reading that depending on if your family's influential and we got all these copies being made and they're traveling and we've got whole families of texts now with unintentional errors. Now, intentional errors abound. And by that, I should say intentional. I call it an error because it doesn't match what Paul or Peter or Luke actually said. But you can call them intentional changes. And the first one is grammatical changes. And I just give you an English example, but there's Greek examples. They, they abound as well, especially in John's writings. But John may say something that sounds like a fisherman. You know, God ain't moving. And maybe John wrote it like that. Well, you get a manuscript and you're from Caesarea and you're totally educated and you're like, I can't write that. That, that, ain't, that ain't right. That's not right. <laughs> I obviously could write that. So you say, well, I at least got to finish the word. So I'm not going to do this little moving thing. I don't want to sound like a hick. I at least, I'm at least put moving, and I ain't isn't right, but I'll just a step, I'll make it isn't. Well, then your manuscript gets copied from somebody who's maybe in, uh, you know, Tarsus, and he copies your manuscript and says, well, isn't moving. Why do we need a contract? God is not moving. Well, there's three different manuscripts. They may be all within 100 or 200 years of each other, but they all read something different in that sentence. God isn't moving, or God ain't moving. God isn't moving. God is not moving. Now, again, they all mean the same thing. And like your postman and your last name, everyone knows what we're saying here. But there's been changes. And they're intentional. People did it on purpose. Now, we get into problems here. Number two, attempts to harmonize. Now, remember, I said there are more variant readings in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, really per, per verse, than any other place in the New Testament. Why? Because many of the changes, particularly late Byzantine manuscripts, are trying to harmonize texts. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are talking about the same things. Okay? Example. Let's give you a biblical example here. Luke 5.32. Now, the early manuscripts of Luke 5.32 read like this. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay? Late manuscripts of Luke 5.32 read, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Ah, great. No problem. It's no problem. There's been no problem there. That, that's consistent. The parallel passage over in Matthew 9, the early manuscripts read, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. It's a different text. It's, it's the same story, but Matthew, because it's longer and he's filling things in for a Jewish audience, he notes that Jesus sets this up with Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Luke didn't say that writing primarily to Gentiles, or at least 50-50.
So he quotes Isaiah, Hosea 6.6 6, when Jesus set that comment up. He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I not come to call the righteous but sinners. It's a different rendering of this. Okay? It's giving us more information. Well, later scribes, particularly Byzantine scribes, you know, hundreds of years removed, in some cases a thousand years removed, said, well, you know what? I know the parallel passage, and the parallel passage says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So in Matthew chapter 9, we have a whole set of manuscripts, late manuscripts, that add the words to repentance. The earliest manuscripts don't have that. And we assume that it's right that it doesn't have that because Matthew is trying to get to the end of this quote. There's no problem here in harmonizing what Jesus said. Some guys don't give all of what Jesus said. Some guys truncate what Jesus said. But the point is, Jesus said, I've come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Matthew doesn't record it. The scribes say, well, we need to add that because we want to harmonize these passages. Even some, and they don't make it very long, but might even add the Hosea 6, 6 setup. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And all these examples, I looked up all the variant readings and can't recall if there were any that tried to do that. Most of those don't even make the hit parade because it's so far out in left field. So for instance, I'll give you an example. You got an NIV, an ESV, uh, new revised. It's not going to have two repentance. You have a Byzantine-based text like a King James or a New King James, you're going to have the words to repentance, which we think can safely assume was an intentional harmonization of those two passages. Number three, the adding of natural compliments. The adding of natural compliments. So often the writers repeat phrases over and over and over again. Phrases like the scribes and Pharisees. Phrases like, um, here's one that the gospel writers love, the great multitudes, right? Ox, ox loss, megos, ox loss. It just, it rolls off their pen and they like it. It's what Jesus said repeatedly, obviously. They, he likes that phrase. Obviously, every time he talked about the crowd, though, or the writers talked about the crowd as they wrote narratives about what Jesus was doing, they didn't always use the word megos or great. Sometimes they did, and most of the time they did. Well, in some passages, like Matthew 8, 18, okay, the early manuscripts will say, when Jesus saw the multitude or the crowd, Megos, great, is not there. But because so many other places throughout the Gospels, great is put with that word, right? The later manuscripts, we assume, add this word because it's a natural compliment, either through an unintentional, that's just the way my brain heard it because that's the way he always says it, or, hey, we got to harmonize this. This is what, you know, the text is always saying about Jesus. There was always a great crowd there. So there is an addition of a natural compliment. Like scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law, um, those combinations are you know, what we'd expect. And when you don't have it, people add it because they think, well, that's what should be there. How about this one? Historical or geographical clarifications. Historical or geographic clarifications. Sometimes there's differences between Matthew and Luke, for instance, or Matthew and John, John will give us more explanation because John is writing to a different audience than Matthew. Matthew is the classic. He assumes these Jews are all interested in the, in the Torah, and he assumes a lot of knowledge. John assumes the least. Luke assumes less. And so they're adding things. But now that these manuscripts have a life 
that now they get copied in certain places, we find that the copying process begins to add information like this. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power. That's Luke 24 at the end of the book. Okay? That is what our earliest manuscripts say. Now, the late manuscripts around the 9th, 10th century, they start to say this, but stay in the city of Jerusalem. We're assuming now because we want to clarify what city we're talking about. This is a classic addition of a geographic or historical clarification. How about this one? Combining two variants. Combining two variants. Combines two variant readings. You'll like this one. As though you didn't like the last one. I don't know. Maybe you didn't. Early Alexandrian manuscripts. This one's, this one's classic. In, in 1 Thess 3, 1, talking about Timothy, they say, Timothy, our brother and servant, our Adelphos and, and, uh, and Doulos, our brother and, and servant. Western manuscripts, okay, out west, they read this way, Timothy, our brother and fellow worker, fellow worker. Well, the Byzantine manuscripts, the latest manuscripts, guess what they wrote? Well, they conflated these two. They combined these two. Timothy, our brother, servant, and fellow worker, which is almost absolutely certain was not what Paul wrote. But because they were hit with a variant that said servant in one set of manuscripts and fellow worker in another set of manuscripts, and because they were dealing with the New Testament, they thought, I don't want to leave it out. I don't want to get it wrong. Right? All the above. Right? That's what we always did in school. <laughs> all, all, all the above. Got to be. Uh, and, that, and that's what they did here. Due to doctrinal concerns. Let's see if we can do this in a minute and a half. Intentional errors due to doctrinal concerns. Here's a classic example. Acts chapter 8. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verse 37 real quick. Acts 8, 37. Sword drill. Got to do it fast. Acts 8.37. Because we're out of time. What does that say? Acts 8.37. Mm, 8.37. Oh, man. You have a satanic Bible. They took it out. Okay. 36 ends this way. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Ethiopian eunuch says. Then it skips to verse 38, and he gave orders to stop the chariot and do it, okay? All the manuscripts say that, with the exception of, ready, one 8th century uncial manuscript and four 10th to 12th century minuscule manuscripts. And those manuscripts, that's five manuscripts out of thousands, okay? They add this, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, Ethiopian eunuch, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he gave orders, stop the chariot and do it. Why is verse 37 not there? Because it certainly was not what Luke wrote. And th though the argument is usually made, this was an intentional addition because it was an early baptismal formula. Like we have our little baptismal formula, right? We ask a question and then we say our thing. That they said, this needs to go here. And they put it in. I'm willing to even buy that it was an unintentional addition. It was probably in the margin. 
I'm not sure it was unintentional. Perhaps it was. But that's a classic example. And then I know the guys, you know, that will come in and say, Satan took it out of your Bible. But uh, I got another example that's even worse. How about this one? 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 says, For there are three that testify. Verse 8 then says, The spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. Okay? I say all in quotes because it, it's all but four manuscripts. And they're all late. And when I say late, there's only one that may be 10th, and all the others are post-16th century manuscripts. 16th century manuscripts, okay? And they read this way, for there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, okay? And these three are one. Oh, that was the first we were looking for when they came to our door last week, right? And there are three that testify on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, okay? That addition right there, okay, there is no possible way John wrote that. I mean, there's no way that he wrote that. And I'll tell you why, okay? There's only one manuscript predating the 16th century that has it, okay? There is not a single early translation, not one, not Coptic, not Syriac, none of it. There is, now ask me, ask me if you're going to buy this. Is there any way the early church fathers that were battling with Arian and all the other issues about the Trinity, wouldn't quote this verse if they had it? I mean, they're quoting thousands of verses. Not one, not one quotation of this Trinitarian statement. Think about how big that is. Think about the statement right there. If that's original, there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. I need that when I'm going to fight these guys that deny the deity of Christ. Not a single reference to it. And yet every single King James Bible on your shelf will have this verse. I went through every one on my shelf, except for the New Testament, so all of them. From my actual 1611 copy, which no one really has. I mean, it's a facsimile of it. All the way to my latest, you know, uh, whatever it was. The, the latest, greatest King James. All of them have it. Now, here's my problem. These guys that say Satan is, is all in these modern translations uh, because... You're taking words out. You know, they always quote that passage in Revelation 22. You know, the verse right in front of it says, don't add to the text, right? Or these plagues will be added to you. Don't add to the words of this prophecy. So here's the thing. Before you start slashing me with the verse that I'm taking anything out because you're comparing four documents from late church history, see, you better read the verse in front of it and make sure that your Bible, just because you're so familiar with it, didn't add it. See, because if it added it, you're just as bad off as I am. And the point is, all of these variants, they're, they're issues we can settle, and we don't have time for it now because we're four minutes late. But I wanted to, I wanted to crescendo up to this text because it's one of a few verses that we need to understand our issues. Sorry if that was too passionate. Was that too passionate? Okay, we'll talk. We'll get number seven next time. We're done.